This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. There is a popular mythology out there, perhaps, which is that people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad managers. We wouldn't necessarily say that's perfectly true. I think what's more true is that people leave bad leadership. That's the voice of Steve Hopkins. He's the Director of Customer Success and Support at Culture Amp. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, today we're speaking about company culture. We've heard from a number of guests in the past that employee experience is one of the fundamental ways of delivering a great customer experience. And so, we're going to speak to Steve about how to measure and improve your company culture. Indeed, this is a great show. I love the folks at CultureAmp. They're a wonderful Australian startup success story and an excellent show around measuring and taking action to improve your culture on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. And one thing to look out for is the story that Steve tells about how Airbnb changed their culture. So, we started off by asking Steve, how do you bring culture to life? To bring it to life, I think you have to create an environment where people are able to do four things very broadly or be those four things and kind of make sense of it all together. So you've got yourself, obviously, so you've got your perspective on the world. So that's one place to start. Mm -hmm. You've got everybody else's perspective, which you never know fully. (laughs) And that's where the fun is, right? Communicating your sense of the world with your colleagues and with others and sort of understanding what gaps there might be. There's then stuff that you as an individual want to get done and have to get done. And so you're trying to understand what that is for yourself. And then you're trying to understand all of those three things kind of merging into one and sort of understand what is everybody else trying to do and how are they making it all fit together. And then I suppose it's what the company wants to get done as well, <laughs> what the company's trying to achieve. Yeah, that's right. And then it's what the company's trying to achieve. And that's kind of that fourth thing. It's kind of what's the collective approach? What's the collective thing we're trying to get done and how does it all fit and make sense? So I, I think a lot about sense-making. I actually think about from a cultural perspective as well as from a customer experience perspective. So to make culture kind of work better, what you're actually talking about is making it make sense to people faster as it changes. So I like that. And I like to spend a moment on how do we make culture work better? So CultureAmp has a wonderful reputation in the market of taking a fresh approach to understanding your culture internally. And I think a lot of organizations either don't do anything or they send out sort of like the annual survey or it's maybe a bit ad hoc. Maybe let's start with what does CultureAmp do? And then we can kind of unpack that a bit more. So what CultureAmp does is that we're basically the best in the simplest way that you can collect, understand, and then act on feedback across your entire organization. And we believe that helps you change and direct and be purposeful about your culture. We would call that being culture first, but we believe you need to be doing those three things, collecting, understanding, and acting on feedback to help you kind of dynamically steer what it is that you're trying to achieve. We're all familiar with NPS in the customer experience world and we've heard on previous shows that you need to get your employee experience and culture right first before you can deliver a great NPS. And I understand CultureAmp has sort of an internal NPS type score. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about what that is exactly? NPS is typically one question. Um, You're also, you're doing that frequency of asking. But the trick is that you're taking action at a much slower cadence, whereas at CultureAmp what we're doing is we're really looking to help companies measure employee engagement or actually any kind of factor. So many, most of our customers use employee engagement as their kind of key measuring factor that they're looking to really understand and learn about. So we measure employee engagement by basically looking to assess 
how proud someone is to work at the company they work for, how motivated they are to work at the company they work for, and the commitment to the company. And so we do that with a five question factor. From then on, there's a number of questions, obviously, that we ask that give you a rounded out view of the employee's experience at the company uh, or experience of that company. And then between the two, you can then begin to correlate and ask really cool questions around, well, what's driving engagement the most? What would make someone more proud, more motivated and more committed to our company? Yeah, that's really good, Steve. So what are those five questions that you ask? Yeah, so for us in our template that we provide to customers, there are five. So the first one is I'm proud to work for Culturamp. The second one is Culturamp motivates me to go beyond what I would in a similar role elsewhere. The third one is I rarely think about looking for a job at another company. Number four is I see myself still working at Culturamp in two years' time or insert here whatever your company name is. And then I would recommend Culturamp as a great place to work. Great. Yeah, across those five questions. And is that on a scale of 10 or...? We do a five-point scale. Uh, That's where it's sort of different from the NPS approach. That's one of the differences. And how often would you be asking this? It's not so much about how often. What we really look to help organizations that come to work with us do is we really look to help them put in place a feedback strategy. So for many organizations, they might start trying to ask questions. They might start trying to do an employee NPS type thing, but they very quickly realize that it's getting them a lot of data, but it's not necessarily getting them a lot of insight. Um, Mm. And so for us, it's really about putting in place a strategy that they're collecting all kinds of different data that really checks in and gives employees a chance to provide feedback about the experience they're having at being an employee at a certain company at different points in time. So you might do an engagement survey where you would ask those five questions as well as many others. Maybe some people do it as often as once a quarter, others do it once a year. But really, at the end of the day, you're trying to collect a number of different pieces of feedback across the organization in a way such that allows you to actually take action on what you learn. And that's probably probably actually the biggest thing about our approach, I guess, or about what Coltramp, you know, what we preach is we really sort of focus on helping organizations take that action point. And that's really where I guess most of the organizations and the people that we work with are really looking to us for. And do you have any examples of companies that you think do this well? I think maybe I'll speak about just our approach because obviously it's what we would perceive as the ideal, I guess. Our feedback strategy is basically that we do a what we would call an engagement survey or we call it a quarterly check-in, but it's a, an engagement survey basically. We do one of those every quarter. We ask those five questions as well as normally between 20 and 30 others and we ask it across the whole organization and then we report out on it. And then we ask at that cadence because we feel confident enough that we're also acting on the insights that we get in that quarter. So basically imagine we get the results, we learn a bunch of stuff, you know, we've understood a bunch more about our culture and our company and what we're doing um, and how people are experiencing it. And then we will take action, fix something, change something, do something different. And then when the quarter rolls around the next quarter or the next survey rolls around in, in three or four months time, we then get a chance to see whether that's moved the needle, yay or nay. I'm interested to know if there's a couple of key lessons, maybe what are your top three lessons that Coltramp has learned from working with all of these different organizations and all of that huge amount of data? What are the top lessons? For me, the top lessons are actually also very much what we talk about, but we continue to learn them and see other customers or you know other people that we work with learn them too. Um, I think the first one is you must listen. So it's not okay anymore to say something along the lines of, yeah, we don't know what our people think. We don't know what experience they're having. We don't know what drives our culture. We're not, you're just not listening, basically. Lesson number two is that once you're listening, you really then, you need to seek to understand. So you get a bunch of data back and 
it's really easy as as you would be familiar with in any context, right? When you have so much data, it can be really easy to sort of lose the forest for the trees. So you really then have to take that data and seek to understand what it is that it's telling you. And that normally involves conversations and follow-up and your own kind of analysis. And there's a whole bit to that. So that's number two. And then number three is once you've understood the data, then you really got to take action on it. And this is arguably the hardest leap to make. It's also the one where the real uh, the real value is. If you've gathered really great data and you feel good about the way you've gathered it, if you've then understood it and feel like you've understood the way that people are experiencing something at your company or experiencing your culture, then the next step is to actually change that if there's a gap in how you would like that to be perceived. And so then taking action and really building the muscle within your organization to be able to do that and collaborate together to take that action and change those things. So they're the lessons that we learn time and time again. We ourselves learn them time and time again. I myself as a a leader and a manager learn them time and time again and our customers um, certainly learn them time and time again. I'm not going to let you go on that one. You offered that uh, you've had lots of learnings as a leader and a manager going through these three-step processes, listening, understanding and acting. You've obviously got the strategy and the framework in place to listen, but we'd love to hear how it's been able to create some, some nice impact. I mean, one that that springs to mind is a really recent one. Uh, So we're at the size as a group, I guess, that we've grown through being easily able to communicate with everyone in the globe um, Mm. to being kind of regionally based to now being kind of even more regionally based or the regions, perhaps there are more regions and they're smaller. And so as I've kind of overseen or kind of stewarded that process, how we communicate has changed or has needed to change. And so, you know, the listening piece, we got feedback from our latest check-in about three months ago that um, broadly across the whole of Culture Amp, that one of the things that we need, really needed to work on the most was our internal collaboration and how we work together to get stuff done. So that was the focus area out of our, out of our survey. So we had listened, we heard that data, our exec and myself and everybody else in the organization kind of really worked around to understand that data and make sense of it and sort of ask what, what's the right fulcrum here? What's the right leverage point for us to kind of work on? And just given our size and scale, we're now 300 people with four offices around the world, you know, that's just never going to get easier. <laughs> so, so that was the real decision. We decided to take action on that this time around or this quarter. And then for me, the way I made sense of that is that my own meetings just weren't doing it anymore for me. And I think for the customer success people and the support people at Culture Amp, I mean, candidly, the support people weren't even on the invite because they have their own rhythm and their own operating mechanism but also it's just the shape of the orcas changed a lot so that was that we had sort of east and west groups that would meet every other fortnight but everyone wanted to see everybody else and that was feedback that we'd actually gotten a while ago like candidly like we'd received that feedback we did a survey to see how that actual meeting was going six months ago and that was a a piece so my own personal take action for this quarter was just to change the meeting cadence like it sounds so simple so basic yeah just doing that you know took me longer than i would like to admit to just get around like Cancelling the calendar things, making the changes, calendaring the new ones in, understanding what we're going to talk about when we get everyone together. And so the change that we've made is we've moved away from all of those other kind of meetings that were in place to just one meeting that takes place and all hands. So we do an all hands, we do them twice a quarter now, one at the beginning of the quarter, kind of a few weeks in, one closer to the end. The start of the quarter, we talk a little bit about goals and we give people a stage to uh, really present what they're looking to achieve and what they're working on. And then at the end of the quarter, we kind of wrap it up with how we're looking at going and what we need to do in the last little stretch to get there. And then again, give the stage over to people so that it's not just me talking. I think what I like about that story, Steve, is that it sort of clearly shows an example of where, while in the scheme of things, it's not a huge problem, that could have festered over time to become like a real source of people who are disgruntled. And so 
being able to spot it early and even though the change isn't revolutionary, it's sort of enhancing the communication, that change and then being able to see that acting on that feedback is also what makes great culture because people then enjoy coming to work ultimately, right? And they feel like they can get their things done in a more efficient way, et cetera. That's right, yeah. And the piece I loved, like to, to geek out a little bit, the piece I loved most about it was that I got to ask a follow-up question to everyone, which was, was this effective at addressing that overall goal of helping us collaborate better globally? And that action was 43% effective. Not only did I get great feedback, like not only do we make a great change and I think it's helping, it also didn't really move the needle on how people would answer that question next time around. So I know there's still more work to do. And so I think that just closing that feedback loop within an organization is so rare, like very often, particularly with people work and management work and cultural work, you can kind of do the listening, you can kind of do the understanding, you can then even take action. But then the real key is kind of going around and doing it all again and kind of listening again to understand whether the action you took actually made a difference or not. And so that's been really fun to see. I've had a chance to see that just in the last three months. Welcome to the quick fire round. This is our lightning segment, our quiz show where you've got 10 seconds to answer. Are you ready to rock and roll? Ready. Yep. <laughs> don't be so confident. You don't know what's coming up. <laughs> the nerves, the nerves. I know. Yeah. I've, I know. I've known this is coming. So, you know, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Question one. What brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? Uh, Airbnb. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I wanted to be an osteopath. Weird one. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Next question. What skill are you terrible at? <laughs> Answering questions rapidly. <laughs> 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 oh, man. There are many. There are many I'm terrible at. Steve, what are you reading right now? There's always a couple of things on my kind of virtual bookshelf, if you like. I've got Brene Brown's uh, new one, um, which is uh, Dare to Lead. Um, so I'm sort of reading that here and there, um, but then also one that I've been working through for a while actually uh, is the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. So they're the two things kind of mm. on my bookshelf uh, a little bit at the moment. Uh, movie franchise of choice between Star Wars, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? Uh, Harry Potter. Steve, who is someone that you really admire? My wife, Rose Levine. Beautiful. Uh, pretty admirable, amazing woman that I am lucky, lucky to partner with. So, yeah, she's my inspiration. What non-work-related thing are you really into right now? It's probably actually the the paleo diet stuff. Um, that's endless, endlessly fascinating. Um, that'll be my that'll be my short answer. Hey, Steve, where do you go to upskill? Books, YouTube, podcast, something else? Uh, I actually, I binge watch a lot of YouTube. Um, so particularly my thing is like finding a leader or someone that I respect and admire and watching kind of all of their stuff. And then our final question, Steve, what is your guilty pleasure? Man, uh, man I didn't, didn't know we were going to talk about paleo so much, but Vegemite toast, <laughs> honestly, is my guilty pleasure. <laughs> Man, that is the most unpaleo thing ever. Like, there was no refined carbohydrates, and there was definitely no Vegemite in in uh, in caveman days. So that is out of your out of your diet. <laughs>
What I think is really interesting in what you've been talking about so far is that culture, I think sometimes when we talk about it, it feels, you know, kind of sexy and interesting, but the actual change part of it is clearly not. You know, it's not pool tables, ping pong and, you know, uh, casual Fridays. It's really about people, processes, procedures. It's the hard part, right? I want to ask about how do you actually change culture? How do you improve company culture and which levers are most effective to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first thing is to do what we've been talking about. So to start listening, if you're not, start listening, start gathering that, start understanding, start acting. Uh, I think a lot of companies actually get into analysis paralysis and they don't take action. It's the sort of thing that you need to act against to get feedback on. I totally agree with you. I think the levers you pull, some of them can be grand and there are some categories I would talk about as being the best ones to pull. Just a lot of the work is actually you use some great words there. I'd add one, which is boring. <laughs> like I, I, would sort of, I would sort of say, like if you're doing the boring things, it probably means you're doing the right things. Actually, our, our CEO Didier was was talking about this concept just the other day. The, the difference between an employee's peak experience of a of a culture or of a company and their day to day experience, and often the peak experience might be one thing for companies. It's either really great or it's really poor but it's a peak experience. You don't feel that often, but it's the day-to-day experience that often matters much more. And that's what we try to bring light to with the engagement surveys. So what are some specific examples of that? More specifically, I think the sorts of levers we see organizations pulling or using to create a more effective culture or improve their company culture is very often around uh, leadership and particularly leaders communicating a clear vision that people believe in. There is a popular mythology out there, perhaps, or a popular um, line that gets said a lot, which is that people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad managers. Yes. We've done a bit of research into that. We wouldn't necessarily say that's perfectly true. I think what's more true is that people leave bad leadership or leadership that's maybe to be a little less unfair, leadership that's unclear about what people are doing there and what vision they're contributing to. So one question that often impacts top-line engagement is just how well people feel that the leadership's communicating that vision that they can believe in. And it goes right to the heart of their pride and their motivation and their commitment, right? So it sort of makes sense. Recognition is another really big one. So same again, people just feeling like they receive the appropriate recognition for good work. They're not looking for being told they're wonderful when they're not. They're just looking for the appropriate recognition for the work. Yeah, that's fantastic. Ultimately, that's a lot of very boring processes put in place and just good management, good people skills to kind of be recognizing and spotting those opportunities to really call that out. Another really big one we see is career progression. Maybe people feel like the leaders are communicating a vision they believe in. Maybe people even are getting great recognition, but the progression for their career is not obvious for them. And then finally, across all of those things, ultimately one thing that that many organizations will land on is L&D investment. You know, companies are looking to invest more in learning and development opportunities for their people. So if I walked into a room, hadn't seen a, an organization's engagement surveys, and maybe they didn't have one, I would probably start asking questions around those things. Yeah, definitely. So Steve, we talked um, a little bit about you know how changing culture is hard and boring and unsexy in, in many ways. Can we dig a little bit more into what some of the challenges are and like how to actually overcome them? Like what is preventing organizations from changing their culture? I'd actually love to walk through it with an example. So I think one one that we've seen go through that I think has been wonderful to watch has been Airbnb's journey over the last you know, number of years. So they really have grown up from like a small startup, the disruptive company that everyone kind of knows about to being a really a reasonably large organization themselves. You know, they're at sort of a little more than 4,000 people now globally. 
So, you know, whilst they're not a behemoth yet, they're a really big company and they have all the challenges that go along with that. And so a number of years ago, they really sat down and tried to put a name and a title to what it was that was making what they're doing so special from a cultural standpoint. And so they hired a chap that sort of came in. He was actually an author of a book called The Culting of Brands. His name was Douglas Atkin. But he and the founders and the executive group at Airbnb really went out and did an anthropological study almost to really understand what is it that makes Airbnb special, both for employees, for people, uh, for, for guests and for hosts. And uh, after doing that sort of qualitative study, they really had the core of what they've grown to adopt today. So the idea of that you can belong anywhere, basically, is their vision statement. And so fast forward to today, I think they've really made that part of the fabric of their being. Probably was there from the very start, but it wasn't an espoused failure. It wasn't a, something that they could put on the walls and, and write about and talk about and, and scale in a way. Yeah, it wasn't formalized. It wasn't formalized, but they've done that. It's really wonderful. And so actually just uh, as they've managed that change, it does come down to doing the boring things ultimately again and again and again, but to be continually checking in on on that. One of my favorites that we shared with me was that because they're very focused on belonging, they obviously are very focused on the onboarding experience for new employees. And so they ask all of their managers to ask new people this question, which is, you know, hey, welcome. What is it that we can help you protect here at Airbnb? What is it that you feel you need to protect to be able to bring your whole self to work is kind of the idea of the question. When I heard that, I was like, wow, that's really good. So now I ask it of everybody that comes in at Culture Amp and you get a really great array of answers. You've been through this transformation yourself at Culture Amp. I believe there's the team of teams model that you guys now use. Um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the story behind that and sort of what, what you learned on that journey. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we, we went through basically the same thing. I mean, we were always very vision and mission led. Uh, we'd done really well to hire a bunch of people that were very aligned with that mission and that vision, you know, even back from, from day dot. Uh, the founders, you know, Didier, Rod, John, Doug, they, they did a great job of, of doing that. But then as we grew, I joined around the time that we adopted team of teams. I joined a little bit before. So I got the pleasure of kind of seeing it go from, from sort of idea to this thing that we still use today. And we had hit that point where we were in three offices at that point, but San Francisco was reasonably small still. We were maybe 10 people here and just wasn't working basically, or it was hard to make work. You have to go to a lot of effort to overcome those obstacles in a smaller company, the obstacles being time zones and technology and all that stuff. So we really wanted to create an environment where rather than having everybody to try to work at scaling and growing Coltramp in a way that was really efficient, we wanted to be able to scale and grow in an adaptable way. And so that was really the core of, of why we decided to, to, to take the plunge and, and try organizing ourselves via a team of teams. And what exactly is Team of Teams for those who aren't familiar? It's a book is the first thing. So you can go and <laughs> grab it off the shelf. Uh, you can read it. Um, it's by General Stanley McChrystal or retired General Stanley McChrystal. He uses it in a way to document something that he was a part of organizing back in the early 2000s, which was the Joint Special Operations Task Force or JSOC was the acronym. So basically they were finding in the war that they were fighting that they just were in a battle with terrorism, basically, and they could never keep up. And so they had found that they were trying to take a very siloed, hierarchical approach to battling an enemy that was basically operating as a network. Um, and so they adopted two principles, and this is really ultimately what it is, that when you're operating in an environment that requires, is a complex or chaotic environment, that you really need to adopt a way that everybody in your group or team can have shared consciousness, so a shared sense of what's going on. 
one of the ways they achieved that, which they document in the book, is they did a global all-hands call every day for 90 minutes. <laughs> so everyone, thousands of people on this call every wow. day for 90 minutes at a time that worked for everybody. So it was really late for some, really early for others. They had up to 10,000 or under people on that call every day and they were using it as a way to provide feedback back. Say, so, oh, we, we noticed this, we noticed that to get messages from the top. This is what we're trying to do. This is the mission. And so it was a really open model. So everyone had the consciousness or the shared sense of what was going on and what they could and couldn't do on the ground. So that's ultimately the first principle. The second big takeaway is that once you've got that, you then need empowered execution. So great. Once I know all the context and I have that shared consciousness with all of my team, then I need to be empowered to go and execute on my own or in a small group. And so ultimately that's what you're trying to design for with the team of teams model. In terms of um, how you've implemented this in Coltramp, what does that actually look like? Basically, it means that everyone's in a team. That team is most likely going to be cross-functional, which means you're not just in a team with other people that do your job. So you might be in engineering, you might be in product, you might be in customer success, you might be in sales. You're in a team where you're working with people that, that have a different viewpoint and a different sense of the customer's experience than you do. And that's deliberate. So that's the first one. The second thing, though, is that even though that's the case, it's multidisciplinary. So even some people bring different things to different teams than others, even when they do have some similarities. So, for example, there are customer success people in every team or in every customer-facing team that we have around the world, but some customer success people are better than others at different things and vice versa. And so you're sort of bringing together that variation, which is really, really a powerful thing. You'll find also one of the other concrete things is that teams change. So you might start at Coltramp in a certain team with a certain mission. And so teams' missions change, right? Like one day they were trying to take over that hill and then they either made it or they learned that that hill wasn't that important anymore and then they go and tackle another hill. And so in many other cultures, that's a really expensive thing to do. Like the classic reorg that everyone hears about is very expensive. It's very painful and often it leaves people at attrition risk and they just don't want to be there anymore. Whereas in today's world, you need to almost be having a reorg every week or every two weeks or every month. You need to create the flexibility rather than trying never to have it happen, have it happen so often that you actually learn how to quickly realign resources and sort of tackle a different hill or focus on a different project. So just to summarize, you basically got project teams that are aligned around a specific project or objective and they might have one project manager, one engineer, one customer success, one marketing or salesperson, you know, maybe there's four or five people on that team rather than the traditional model of people working in their silos and disciplines, all the marketing people together, all the whatever people together. And that's really interesting. I can imagine that that was a fairly painful process to move towards from where you began. So what challenges did you have to overcome to get to that? So one of the first challenges is just how do you know what's going on and whether it's working? So first thing we did, we, we ran a, <laughs> <we ran> a <laughs> survey, right? So we were collecting data, we were listening. We were doing that every uh, two weeks originally, which is quite a high cadence for us, but we really wanted to understand and learn as quickly as we could. And then that sort of moved out. There are now still questions on our quarterly cadence that seek to understand how the team's model is working. So that's the first thing we started doing. But then probably one of the bigger lessons I learned as we went through it was, so when we did move to that model, you know, my role as director of customer success at the time and kind of heading that up. And so obviously at that point, 
being the head of a function was a very different prospect. I still mentored, I still managed, we call it mentoring, but I still managed all of the people that were in customer success roles. But I wanted to push into and lean into the, the model as heavily as I could. So we cancelled all the customer success meetings, all the stuff where we would get together to discuss customer success stuff. Basically all the normal artifacts you would see of a group like that. And I thought that really worked to start. And I was kind of the sorting hat, if you like, because I was still meeting with everyone and the team wasn't big enough yet that I could get the context quickly. And I was empowered to make decisions about the customer experience and customer success things that we might have needed to change. But very quickly, we outgrew that and we realized we needed people to still have a strength in their practice, but still be deployed in a team to execute together. And so actually, probably one of the biggest lessons we learned doing that was actually hierarchy is not a dirty word. And so I think when a lot of companies move to adopt a model like this, they do it because they demonize hierarchy and they say it's no good and they want to be really flat and they don't want to build that stuff in. But the reality is, is that nature is inherently hierarchical and so too should our organizations be, but there's just different hierarchies that work for different situations. No, that's excellent, Steve. I want to finish by going back to the start of our discussion where you said that you help companies go beyond the data and help them be successful, which includes kind of building a strategy. So how does CultureAmp help organizations succeed? Some of the things that we've learned are really important is that responsiveness is just crucial for our customers and who we work with. Typically, the, the person that's running a survey of some description within a company there's often no role that does that full-time. So it's always someone that's got it as a project on a list of other things that they're trying to do. But the surveying always tends to be quite a very visible project, right? The CEO will typically get data and need to take action on it. The whole company will see it at some level. Managers will want to take action on it. So it's a high-pressure situation uh, that somebody's been placed in where they don't have a lot of time. And they've got to get it right. <laughs> And they've got to get it right because you only really get to launch it once, right? So we've really learned that being able to respond to someone in minutes makes an enormous difference. Jump on a call. And what's this? They're, they're actually asking CultureAmp for help as to how to best design the survey. Is that the sort of response that you're helping them with? That's a bit different. I, I would say this piece is more like they've probably got their survey design at this point or they know what they're trying to do. They're just trying to get a successful project happening and going. And in that moment where they've only got another 25 minutes or 23 minutes or whatever it is to get it out the door before they go into another series of back-to-back -back meetings, or maybe they're working late at night to get it done, in that moment, they, are, they hit a, a blocker. Either they don't understand how to do something or they do understand how to do something and they're not getting the kind of response they wanted. And so in that moment, providing someone that can help them with that makes a big difference. And so our uh, head of customer support here, uh, Oscar Tobar, said this great thing uh, a while back. Our customers don't actually want to talk to us. But when they do, they really, really, really need to talk to us. And so kind of balancing that has been a really uh, big part of how we approach what we do. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's been a real joy to, to join you and sort of talk through all this stuff. So thanks for having me and thanks for letting us uh, geek out a little bit. Awesome. All right, what a great episode. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the debrief segment where you and I sum up our key takeaways from the episode. Do you want to kick us off today? Sure, yes. Love chatting with Steve. Uh, the guys at CultureAmp are fantastic. In many ways, I see them as the sister company to Raider. What they do for internal employees, we do for customers. And one of the things that first stood out for me was when he described the four views that make up part of culture. Actually, when I was writing my notes, I actually came up with five. So I'm going to take Steve's four and, and turn it into five, <laughs> which I really like. It's a great way to think about it. So one is I have my perspective. 
And then there's your perspective. There's what I'm trying to get done. And then I'm adding in a new one, which is what they're trying to get done. And then what the company's trying to get done. And actually the mixing of these five views and having good communication around that to get the outcome that we all want is actually how we work together. And that is culture. <laughs> and so I think just having some empathy to that and an awareness of it in all our communications is a great way to think about enhancing culture. One thing that I really liked about Coltramp's entire perspective and approach to measuring and, and improving company culture was that really just having the data isn't enough. Mm. You need to seek to understand and, and find some insight in that. But even then, you can kind of get stuck in this analysis paralysis. And right. this theme that ran through the entire discussion with Steve was that you need to take action on the data and the insights that you're getting. And this is, I suppose, not just for culture, but for any kind of information or survey tool that you're using. You need to make meaning of it and then actually do something with it. Uh, and that's the hard part, right? Yeah. Making the changes. And, and Steve gave some interesting examples about you know, actually some feedback that they had internally where he had to go and cancel and change some meetings and all that kind of stuff. And I guess the missing piece from, you know, getting the data, the insight and then acting. So those three steps, there's kind of like a fourth step there as well, which is to go around that circle again and re-measure. You know, Steve talked about how they did that with getting some feedback on their next engagement survey to close that feedback loop on whether changing those meetings actually made a difference. The other takeaway that stood out for me was when he talked about like what to measure in these company surveys to see how your team are feeling. And he's got those ongoing five points and taking a pulse on that. One that really stood out for me, and I actually remember this at my time at Microsoft and I remember filling this in and it, it's such a great question, you know, like, am I proud to work for this company? <laughs> like I almost think that that just stands out against everything else. And so all the things that you do around culture and these things, like ultimately are people proud of working for your company? And for me, that stood out and that was like a great takeaway and a good reminder in my day job at Rated to really think about, you know, does the team feel strongly about, yes, I feel proud to work here. And that is a wonderful asset test and probably a great takeaway for us all to think about with the teams that we work with. And finally, to contrast your big lofty aspirational thing, I'm going to get nitty gritty into the details for the last takeaway, which is <laughs> that effective culture and effective culture change is really about getting the boring things right. And we talked about, you know, it not just being pool tables and casual Fridays and that kind of thing. Culture is really fundamentally about people, processes, procedures. So don't shy away from the boring things, setting the right meetings, having agendas, the all staff events, those kinds of things, the way that you do business and process and communicate and make decisions. That's what really fundamentally culture is about. And so understanding that and going, all right, well, just let's embrace it. Let's actually embrace some of the stuff that feels a bit boring because that's the stuff that moves the needle. So let's sum the takeaways up. The first one was... Let's consider the five views that make up culture. Number two was that the data isn't enough. You need to understand it, act on it, and then remeasure. And the third one that really stood out for me was asking the team, are you proud to work here? And then finally, effective culture change is about getting the boring things right. So thanks for listening to the show. I would love to connect with you. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Michael Momsen, M-O-M-S-E-N. I read and respond to every comment. And you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thanks for listening. See ya.
Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rateit. Rateit can help you capture in-the-moment feedback, understand the insights from that, and take action to improve the customer experience. So to find out more about how Rateit can help your organization improve your customer experience, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This podcast is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. Our theme songs are by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Adam Jaffrey. I'll speak to you next time. Listener.